1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it.
2: a lawyer at and Meek in Louisville, Kentucky, who has also written a book about bourbon. Well, not just bourbon, bourbon and the law. It's called Bourbon Justice. It's available from the University of Nebraska Press. Why bourbon? As Brian writes, arguably, no single commodity has contributed more to the development of American legal history than bourbon. In Bourbon Justice, Brian sets out to demonstrate that, and along the way provides the reader with plenty of case law and tasting notes. Brian, thanks for being on Historically Thinking.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the show, and I hope to... uh to dig into some let's call it spirited history with you today.
2: Indeed. And we hope to give some people some excellent, uh, buying advice for that uh, difficult someone who only drinks or something like that for, for Christmas. Perfect. Um, so let's, let's talk very quickly. Um, we've never talked about bourbon on the show, which given my own interest is kind of astounding. Um, so we should do a very quick run through of, uh, bourbon in America. Um, as you note, this is almost impossible historical tangle. In fact, I think in many ways you've tackled it in the only way that it can be tackled, uh, in the case law. Um, because, uh, I was looking through, um, Instagram and various other places and finding those old crow advertisements from the middle of the 20th century. Right. Uh, which were dependent upon a really historically literate audience, but were almost all made out of whole cloth and, and puffery, which we'll get to in a second. Um, So what's the origin story of bourbon? Does it start at Jacob's Well? Does it start with – where does it start?
3: Well, I I don't think that anyone has been able to find at least who distilled bourbon first or who first used charred oak barrels, which Mm -hmm. is required for bourbon. Um, A lot of people have tried. A lot of people have asked why is it called bourbon? Is Mm -hmm. it because it was from Bourbon County or was it because it went – to New Orleans and was popular on Bourbon Street? Was it a nod to the royal family? All kinds of theories, but but the who hasn't been determined. And personally, I don't think the who matters much. I'm more intrigued by the combination of conditions that primed Kentucky to be synonymous with bourbon. Mm-hmm. And, and that started with the Whiskey Rebellion when General Washington sent troops to Pennsylvania uh, to quell a revolt over taxation. And a lot of the Pennsylvania distillers ended up coming through uh, to the western frontier to Kentucky and found that uh, unlike Pennsylvania where rye was a, grew very well, uh, corn was the plentiful crop here. And it grew remarkably well. We had iron-free water. And the uh, the reach of the government really didn't extend this far yet, mm-hmm. and that's really how bourbon was born. So I'm I'm more interested in in that how. I don't think we'll ever know the who. And frankly, it was probably a uh, hundred farmers at once.
2: Yeah, yeah. Of course, it's it, it's a kind of a social, almost political, legal movement. Um, so they start distilling, and they distill, and they distill. And when does? Um, We've, when does corn liquor begin to catch on popularity? Because, as I recall from reading um, cocktail historians like David Wondrich, brandy and uh, rum remained popular on the Eastern Seaboard for some time until really, I guess, the middle of the nineteenth century.
3: That's right, and uh, rye, somewhat. Uh, yeah, he, he always had its place. Rye always had its place, but uh, but rum was, of course, very popular, and brandy I think was still a, a holdover in popularity. And there, were enough fr- there was enough fruit to, to be able to continue to, to distill mm-hmm. um, uh, fruit brandies. Oh, yeah, but, sure. But corn really didn't get popular until the movement west to Kentucky where corn grew so well. And it was, in fact, so plentiful that farmers had to do something with it to prevent it from, from rotting. Mm-hmm. It, it couldn't be stored. And when farmers realized that it could be monetized, then that's— really when its popularity took off even more, uh, and uh, it, it became an institution here.
2: Yeah, I, I wish people, and and also they discovered, as Washington did at Mount Vernon, that the more you can keep production close to your farm, uh, if you can do it yourself, you'll make a lot more money. You make a lot more money on a gallon of, of bourbon than you do on a bushel of corn.
3: Uh, that's right. They They learned that, and then they also learned – that, the, that they could take the spent mash and feed their cattle and hogs. Mm-hmm. So farmers growing corn then turned into mills, mm-hmm. which then turned into distilleries, which then turned into cattle and hog farms, and the farmers could continue to build their wealth.
2: Yeah, so you're, you have a wonderful sort of um, – entrepreneurial case of stacking multiple things on top of you can do multiple things rather than just one thing in right. the same space. So it becomes popular by the late 19th century and then we have rectifiers. Uh, I was so naive. I hadn't thought about this. Um, I knew that people watered down milk a lot in the 19th century. That's why um, Thoreau says something about uh, coincidence can be um, coincidence can be important as for example when you find trout in a milk. Um, That's right. And so rectifiers were essentially creating fake quote unquote bourbon. Uh, How did they do that? There's some awful recipes that you give.
3: There's horrible recipes. Uh, Some were maybe not so bad they were at least clean. Let's say Mm -hmm. Uh, others contained acid to give a, to give that feel of the burn Mm. Um, or tobacco juice to give the color (laughs) and so some, some really did try to use, uh, use decent coloring and decent additives, but it's, a, it's something that I think we've seen throughout all of history. When, when one industry has success, that leads to imitators, and the imitators try to find a way to innovate, and so they cut corners or cut costs so they, they can sell their goods for something less than the original cost. And that's really what Bourbon faced here, because good bourbon takes, uh, at the time, they were aging it for at least four years, uh, whereas a rectifier could could produce something that tasted like a four-year-old bourbon in a matter of hours or just a day. Hmm. And uh, so they, they would add they would add all sorts of things to it. Sometimes it included whiskey. Sometimes it didn't have any whiskey in it, in it at all. It would just have a, a high-proof neutral grain spirit as the source of the alcohol and it came to the point because they could charge so much less than bourbon it became the more popular drink and that's hmm. part of what i cover in the book as well is is how the bourbon industry the the distillers of straight bourbon whiskey how they counter yeah. the the rectifiers because they weren't beating the rectifiers in the market.
2: So we'll get back to that in just a couple of minutes. The major, the war with the rectifiers is a major inflection point in bourbon history and also within um, the food and drug act and lots of the other important uh, legislation of the early 20th century, lo and behold that's right. Um, right. and now then we have the basic prohibition uh, which was supposed to be the death of bourbon. Um, how many distilleries, I, I think you give a figure, how many distilleries are put out of business in Kentucky?
3: Well, they, they say, and I don't they I say. probably, yeah, yeah, they say, so I can't exactly uh, give a precise number, but I've, I've seen numbers in the low two thousands, uh, that before prohibition, there were over 2000 farm distilleries throughout the state. And then during prohibition, that you of course needed a governmental medicinal license, mm-hmm. and suddenly the industry consolidates, and you come out of prohibition with the with the favored players, and you have six distilleries
2: left. As, as so many economists could have told them, would be the case. Um, in the end, it's the it's the biggest companies that like regulation. That's right. Because um, they can survive. Yeah, so the result is a very different bourbon landscape um, with um, big companies, big advertising, and yet fifty years later um, comes a death, a near-death experience. It seems to me almost as severe as prohibition in the in the nineteen eighties. That's right. With vodka, the vodka has caught on and become the American um, liquor. Oddly enough, that's uh, right. During this the one Cold was- War.
3: That's right. It, it's self-imposed during the the Cold War, and and you can remember the wine cooler fad and yeah. the Bartles and James, and mm. it's, it's it was a dark time. I was there whiskey. for that. Yeah, yeah. It uh, they sold it in two liters, two liters of wine coolers. Yeah, uh, and so the Stitzel Weller Distillery in Louisville, which is so famed, uh, didn't survive. That closed. The George T. Stagg Distillery, which was ancient age and which is now Buffalo Trace was at risk of of closing the old taylor distillery closed the old crow distillery closed just absolutely legendary distilleries didn't make it through this uh this self-imposed um change in americans
2: taste and yet somehow i mean and and i kind of remember when this was this is like 1993 on a monday um it it was it happened that quickly um along with the people be interested in swing dancers and cigars. Um, all of a sudden taste changed again and the fashion changed overnight and people started giving you bottles of maker's Mark or something like that. And that, that suddenly became hip and good.
3: That's right. And it, it started with maker's Mark. Um, they had a front page story in the wall street journal, but then the other distillers started catching on. And Heaven Hill launched Elijah Craig as a 12-year small batch. They sort of invented the, the, I guess, reinvented small batch. And I think what really did it was Brown Foreman's repurchase of the old Oscar Pepper distillery. And I say repurchase because they had owned it decades Hmm. ago and sold it to a farmer. And they bought it again. And that's when they launched Woodford Reserve in the mid-'90s, which – returned bourbon a, a premium brand to the bourbon market and now woodford's not really even thought of as as premium hardly anymore no, but, that's it, interesting, but at the time it? at the time it had a beautiful bottle and it was marketed as a premium bourbon and people believed it and they gobbled it up
2: Mm-hmm. they sucked it down they did and all of a sudden everyone wanted to start a bourbon distillery. I mean, I think it seems like they still do here talking to you from Charlottesville. There have to be at least four or five would be bourbon distillers, you know, within 10 miles of here um, where before, I mean, there are plenty of still wineries in the Charlottesville area, many, 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 but whereas it had only been wineries in the past. Now there are umpteen distillers. It's very curious. This craze has not ended. I
3: and mean, not at all. I mean, I, I joked five years ago that by now I would be, buying a still out of bankruptcy i would be buying it on the cheap and i could do it myself and prices have only gone up yeah, and that's true. the uh, the the makers of the stills the the best one is is located in here in louisville called vendome mm-hmm. and if you if you have a vendome still you're 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 doing it right and they they can't fill all the orders.
2: Is
1: that,
3: People are are still needing stills and still building their distilleries.
2: That's amazing. Well, what sort of stills do they make? I shouldn't. This is not chemical engineer thinking, but my father would want me to ask.
3: Oh, they they make any kind of still you need. uh, Most stills now are column stills, Mm -hmm, but they can make them in any diameter that you that you want. Um, But they're they're a copper works, so they can build everything you need for the guts of your distillery.
2: That's fine. So business is good. Uh, Let's talk about um, some definitions then of what bourbon is, because as you observe, it seems to me that um, misconceptions are in some ways enjoyed by the bourbon industry. (laughs) <laughs> and, and they're used <laughs> and they're used because of the puffery uh, which we then have to carefully legally separate from actual genuine lying um, so what what is bourbon
3: sure I, I felt in the book that I needed to set the stage so we're all in the bourbon frame of mind and it it as you say I think it plays through the rest of the book it so does. to be to be bourbon The basics, and this is governed by federal regulations, has to be at least 51% corn-fermented mash. Mm -hmm. The other grains don't necessarily matter, but they're usually rye and a little bit of barley, sometimes wheat and barley, but 51% corn is the key. Mm -hmm. It can't be distilled very high. It can only go to 160 proof in the still. Uh, It has to be stored in new charred oak containers and i say the word containers there even though it's always a barrel Uh, if you want to store your your new distillation in a in an oak in a charred oak bucket you can do
2: that and it doesn't have to be in that bucket for more than five seconds or even less
3: Uh, that's right if it passes through if it if it satisfies whatever stored means which could be even momentarily you immediately have bourbon. You don't have straight bourbon, but you immediately have bourbon.
2: So there's no aging requirement for bourbon to be bourbon.
3: Uh, That's right. The only requirement is that it's stored in a new charred oak container. So if you want to dump it in and dump it out, you have bourbon.
2: Can there be Virginia bourbon?
3: Absolutely. Um, Virginia bourbon doesn't have a special designation by the Commonwealth of Virginia as Tennessee whiskey does. And, and uh, and to use the name Kentucky bourbon, there's a, we have our own statute that deals with that. Mm-hmm. But there can absolutely be bourbon made in Virginia, and I would think a distiller in Virginia would want to to use a state designation uh, for okay. their own for their own
2: marketing. Purposes. There could be Rhode Island bourbon, Maine That's bourbon. That's right. There can, can be- bourbon doesn't have to be from Kentucky.
3: It does not have to be from Kentucky. You could have Hawaiian bourbon that is aged in the shadows of whatever volcano you want to talk about, uh-huh. and ha- you can imagine the whole marketing shtick that you could have there.
2: Oh, yeah, but, but they would still have to put in a, an oak barrel, not white, white right. oak, as you point out. That's, a, that's kind of a myth.
3: That's right. It, it doesn't have to be any particular kind of oak. It just has to be new, and it has to be charred on the inside. It, it can't go into the barrel at more than 125 proof, and when it's bottled, it can't be anything less than 80 proof, although a trend more recently is is to put it in the bottle at very, very high proofs.
2: Yeah, and then trust that people will water it down. That's um, right. uh, So let's go through a few other things that actually have definitions, and then we'll get to puffery. Um, straight bourbon, what does that mean?
3: straight bourbon has to be aged a minimum of two years, and it can't have any additives other than water to proof it down. Um, So that's where you get into the age requirement. If if any of the listeners have been on bourbon tours, sometimes the tour guides mess up on this, Mm -hmm. and they say bourbon has to be aged two years, or they say bourbon has to be aged four years. Um, but it, again, it doesn't have to be aged at all, but to be straight bourbon, it has to be two years.
2: Um, single barrel bourbon that's become very popular since was, was Booker the first that was really pushed the idea of well, single barrel
3: Blanton's may have been the, the, uh, the first one in the, in recent times to do it. Um, originally bourbon was sold by the barrels. So right, everything was a single barrel but, automatically. But, yeah. But uh, Blanton's started it, and then uh, then Booker's continued with it. Uh, Four Roses has a has probably one of the best known private barrel programs, where it where it will sell you a single barrel of uh, barrel strength Four Roses. Uh, but as you say, it's very popular now. It's it's the it's the thing to be. It may mm-hmm. have taken over from small batch. Mm-hmm. Uh, single barrel isn't necessarily identified. We think we know what it means. <laughs> um, but, for example, Woodford Reserve makes a, uh, a bourbon that they call uh, double oaked, where they take f- a fully mature, normal Woodford Reserve, and then they barrel it a second time in a, in a new barrel that has been only lightly charred. Mm-hmm. And they get more of the sweet flavors for the second barreling. So there's a question, a legitimate question, I think, whether that's really a single barrel, mm-hmm. um, because it may come out of one of the second barrel, but more than one original barrel went into that.
2: Now, I guess I, one thing I didn't think about is why were things, uh, obviously, uh, as you say, it was things were always single barrel, and uh, they have to move barrels around the, the house as they, as they age, correct? The, the, the enormous barns?
3: Uh, well, only Maker's Mark does that. Only Maker's uh, Mark does that, and it's a very costly and time-consuming
2: process. Yeah. Um, so, why was uh, how did what did they do instead of single barrel? Were they sort of as were they mixing it together from different? I mean, what was the?
3: Well, after uh, after the 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 normal practice selling by the the barrel. Changed. It changed because glass bottles became uh, more accessible. Obviously, and and once and once producers were able to bottle their bourbon, that's when they started using large tanks, and -hmm. they would Mm -hmm. uh, put their put many as many barrels as they could fit in the size tank that they bought. Uh, to be able to be used on the bottling line. Okay. And it was never really called the batch. It was never really called small batch or large batch or anything else. It was just bourbon.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, we've already said that uh, if uh, something says Kentucky on it, it has to be from Kentucky uh, That's right, or Rhode Island or, or <laughs> right. Hawaii. Uh, we'll get back to that in just a second because th- this is actually turns out to be a really important part of case law. Um, Proof. Just refresh your memories. What proof means? You said it couldn't be over 180 proof and Uh, it
3: can't, right. When it's distilled, there's several numbers there when it's distilled that can't be higher than 160. And the reason for that is that the higher proof that you get from a still, the, the less flavor you will have from the grains. So a, a, uh, a vodka, for example, is distilled maybe up to 180 or higher. Mm-hmm. And the per, and the point of vodka is, is to strip out all of the flavor. Mm-hmm. The point of bourbon is to leave the flavor of the grain and the yeast in the distillate. So this, and, is,
2: this by the way, I just want to put a pin sure. on this because this points out the way in which some of these, these the regulations and definitions of bourbon are are a way of uh, bourbon producers of keeping um, themselves or rectifiers from ruining a good product?
3: Uh, Part of it is keeping themselves from from ruining it because there is a financial incentive to have higher proofs both uh, on the still and into the barrel because uh, producers are taxed based on the volume that they produce and that they put into the barrel. And if you have, if you can add water later,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, you you make more money. Mm-hmm. So now there is a trend after a trend of of decades of of producers putting into the uh, whiskey into the barrel at a higher proof. It's starting to come down, especially with a lot of the craft distillers. They'll be putting it into the barrel at 107 proof, and by doing that, they're retaining a lot more the the flavors from the grain and the yeast. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I really, really like it because mm-hmm. you, you get so much more flavor out of a lower proof distillate.
2: Let's talk about uh, puffery. You devote a, sure. chap- a chapter to it. Um, I think it's a fun way of thinking about puffery and what it is um, and what it is not is to look at some of the terms that uh, bourbon snobs um, and, but more important, have been, t- have been educated by distillers to use. Um, so oftentimes we'll say, well, this is a small batch bourbon, uh, and what does small batch mean?
3: It means whatever the distiller (laughs) wants it to mean, and they'll probably not tell you,
2: Uh um, the, what, what do they, what are they trying to imply to you?
3: They're trying to imply, I think, uh, craft and they're trying to imply personal attention at a bucolic distillery Mm -hmm. by a by a small creek and forest with rustling leaves just whatever you picture as the ideal distillery yeah Uh, that's what craft tries to imply and that's what small batch this personal attention to the bourbon i think is is what they mean to imply and some have have small very small batches uh, maybe not more than five barrels go into a batch
2: that's a small batch
3: that's a small batch others have 200 that go into a small batch and that doesn't sound so small to me
2: how many are how many gallons are in a barrel
3: uh, 53 to start and mm. then depending on how much the distiller loses from what's called the angel share that's mm-hmm. the evaporation while it ages um, it can it can get pretty low on well-aged bourbon
2: hmm. um, And so handmade is part of small batch and craft. It's sort of the same idea Yeah, you know.
3: Hand right handmade is the same idea and makers mark got sued in both, Florida and California in class actions over the use of the the term handmade on its label and the court ruled that it's puffery puffery is essentially sanctioned lying so long as it's so exaggerated that no reasonable consumer is going to be wrongly influenced.
2: I I thought about this, looking at those old Crow ads from the fifties and so on when Henry Clay met Lily Langtree or whatever it was, Jenny Lind and what could be more appropriate to toast the great soprano than a glass of old Crow question mark. That's right. Never happened. Right. Never said that he did. It just said, what could be more appropriate,
3: right? So and as long as that didn't influence anyone wrongly, it's it's fine.
2: Mm -hmm. Purity was a little surprising to me that purity didn't mean anything.
3: Well, a purity is a little touchier um, and is partly a puffery issue and and partly not. Hmm. Um, Purity is something that was guaranteed in the late eighteen hundreds through the Bottled in Bond Act. And it got to be such a touchstone word that now the the word is regulated and it cannot be used on a label unless it's a part of a bona fide brand name and one of those brands is called pure kentucky but you you rarely see the word pure on labels anymore uh, because i think because it was such a a battlefront between the straight whiskey distillers and the rectifiers each claimed to have a purer product than the other the rectifiers said that they would that they would distill all of the impurities out um but of course they added other things and uh and the straight bourbon distillers meant pure in the sense that we're only using the, the, the mash and the yeast and the aging process to give you what's in the bottle.
2: Well, let's talk about Bottled and Bond Act. This is, gets to sort of what you focus on chapter seven, which is consumer protection, but it's the sort of the rectification wars are, are th- throughout your book. Um, so what's the bo- what is Bottled and Bond, and why was that an act? Well, this was, and I
3: think this is surprising to a lot of people, and it's, it, it's fascinating to me. Before adulterated milk was an issue, uh, before the government decided to protect American consumers from rotting meat or whatever was put into sausage, <laughs> the government protected consumers from rectified bourbon. Yeah. It protected the, the manufacturers of straight bourbon whiskey. It's really just a consumer protection law. It uh, it it basically uh, it, it set standards for what would be called bottled and bond. the the name the word bond had been used previously. Uh, it's a taxation term. It's it's a bonding period, and it it means when a tax is paid on whiskey. But the bottled and bond act required bourbon to be aged for four years. It required it to come from a single distillery and from a single season. Uh, from the distillery and it couldn't have anything added to it other than pure water to reduce the proof
2: now That's confusing. Maybe since you just said that it aging wasn't it could be aged for just two years or, or uh,
3: Yes, or. so that, that's that's a difference between straight whiskey and bottled in bond in Got order it. to okay. be bottled in bond It had to be four years,
2: okay So what year was that? Uh, 1897 and the war with the rectifiers doesn't end with that. Um, not not
3: it, at all. As, as all good Americans do, the rectifiers continue to either ignore the Bottle and Bond Act or fight against it.
2: And so am I right? Did I read this correctly that USA, the uh, 50 barrels of whiskey, is the test case for the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906? Th-
3: that's right. That, uh, that's so amazing. That, right. So to, to fast forward to 1906. Yeah. Um, the Bottle and Bond Act hadn't curbed what the rectifiers were doing. It it went a long way toward it, but it it didn't go far enough. And one of the main problems at the time was a a whiskey producer called uh, Walter Duffy, Hmm. and his products was, was called Duffy's Pure Malt Whiskey. And he made all sorts of false medicinal claims. He paid off doctors to give endorsements he paid off nurses to give endorsements he paid off members of the clergy to give endorsements and he made just uh, outlandish claims <laughs> and that and and his whiskey was singled out uh, as one of the <laughs> reasons that the pure food and drug act was needed and the the case that you mentioned the the United States versus 50 barrels of whiskey was a test case to determine the enforceability of the Pure Food and Drug Act. There was rum, essentially rum, that had been falsely labeled as bourbon and had coloring and flavoring additives uh, added to it. And it was being shipped from New Orleans uh, out east somewhere. Hmm. And the barrels were seized under the Pure Food and Drug Act. And uh, and in the challenge to the seizure, the, the government won. Hmm.
2: And how does this then relate to the Taft decision of 1909? Was that an executive order? I mean, rather rather than settled law.
3: Um, it, well, yes, it's something in between. It, huh. it was less than an executive order. It was um, there's. It's it's rare that something comes out like this, and actually, it's a point that I've wanted to research more. Is you know really?
2: Yeah, I was confused how, by
3: it. How often can a president just? Proclaim a decision and have the the force of law. What what President Taft did is he he made this decision and then it was later incorporated into the regulations. Hmm. So there's something that came after it, but it started with his proclamation about whiskey. And so as I said, the the Bottle and Bond Act really didn't do enough. Um, similar to that, the Pure Food and Drug Act didn't necessarily do enough because the rectifiers were still falsely labeling what they had in their bottles so that necessitated President Taft come along and he had what I think is a pretty sensible solution he said that consumers are entitled to know exactly what they're drinking and that labels should be truthful so that consumers can buy exactly what they want whether or not it's straight whiskey or whether it's a blended imitation so his his decision gave guidance on what should be on the labels Uh, the only thing that could be called whiskey was straight whiskey if it was something else if it was blended with a neutral grain spirit it had to be called blended whiskey if it was made from scratch and was pure imitation it had to be called imitation whiskey but he couched it in terms of of hey if that's what you'd like if that's what you'd like to drink go right ahead we just want to make sure that Hmm. you know what you're buying everyone has the right to know what it is that they're buying
2: Um, that's, uh, it it is just fascinating and and to know that it wasn't Upton Sinclair in the jungle that pushed all this forward. It wasn't all that stuff that it wasn't, as you say, about bad meat or people falling into sausage grinders in Chicago. Uh, it was, it was whiskey (laughs) that pushed all this forward.
3: It's, it's fascinating to me too. And those certainly had roles and maybe larger roles from an overall perspective. But whiskey is the first commodity that tipped the scale to be able to have a consumer protection law in the first place.
2: Well, let's talk, about, well, get back to Taft's point about truth and labeling. Um, there's a bunch of cases that you cite here. Um, but I the one I most enjoyed was Jack Daniel Distilling versus Hoffman Distilling. Um, He described the uh, what's what went on there. Uh,
3: That's a Yeah, that's a great case. And and what I try to do is I try to bridge uh, the old cases to mid-century cases to as new cases as I could possibly talk about. And this is one of those uh, mid-level cases from Mm -hmm. the 1950s. Uh, Jack Daniels had just been bought by Brown Foreman, which is located here in Louisville. And it, it was wildly popular uh, at the time, and and Brown Foreman invested a bunch of money to make it even more popular. And it had a distinctive square bottle, and the uh, the, the reason, as an aside, the reason was that uh, so that it wouldn't roll around as it was in your truck seat uh, pa- next to you. <laughs> well, it
2: packs really well. I mean, it it
3: pa- Right, it like, packs well and doesn't roll in the car.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, but it had folksy sayings on it, it had a distinctive black and white label, it had a distinctive neck band on it. Mm-hmm. When you saw a bottle of Jack Daniels, and it's, it's very similar to what it is today, you know that it's a bottle of Jack Daniels.
2: Be so n- Number seven was part of that too, is not it?
3: Right, the old number
2: seven. Old number seven.
3: That's right. And so a startup whiskey producer in Kentucky wanted to ride those coattails and he didn't have a distillery of his own. He couldn't make his own bourbon. He he bought it on the open market, but he decided to emulate Jack Daniels. So he had a square bottle. He had a neck tag. He had a black and white label. He had folksy sayings. He said things on his, in his advertising about uh, his whiskey, which he called Ezra Brooks, which isn't really a person, it's just a, a, it's a made-up name. Um, he put on his advertising that it was in short supply, which was false for Ezra, Ezra Brooks, but it was true for Jack Daniels. Um, so, Brown Foreman sued. Uh, hmm. And and surprisingly, I, it's it's a little bit contrary to a lot of the cases that had come before it, hmm. but Ezra Brooks won and ezra brooks won because the names weren't similar ezra brooks and jack daniels and because one was plainly labeled tennessee whiskey and one was labeled kentucky bourbon and the the court decided that that was enough for consumers to distinguish between the two and not have any confusion or at least no reasonable person having any confusion between the two brands I think probably had what had a lot to do with it was that the case was pending in Kentucky. (laughs) And there is a long rivalry between Kentucky and Tennessee (laughs) and bourbon and Tennessee whiskey.
2: And that's stuck up that that ruling has stood up so far.
3: That's right. It's stood up and it's been used as precedent and
2: for other different cases Um, for
3: for later cases. So it, it it's it gives. It gives a framework for, uh, for new manufacturers, whether it's bourbon or some other industry, to be just different enough hmm. if you are trying to emulate another popular brand.
2: We can think, I mean, and I can think of some like probably cases more recently in different areas than that, but that's, that's this is bourbon law. Um, related to this is naming rights, and um, I always knew that I could never make a Zambone ice resurfacer.
3: That's right um
2: and you explain why um, and this this confu- this market confusion question is this does this first arise in lawsuit disputes over bourbon or over whiskey it
3: it, it, it does, and I think <laughs> there the reason for that is if you if you look on the shelves now mm-hmm. at least probably three-fourths of the bourbons are are named after someone mm-hmm uh, either some historical figure or the master distiller from a decade ago or it's, there is it's, names are very significant on all of these brands. And it's also a situation, especially back in the 1800s, where a father's son would grow up in the business and would become an apprentice and work his way through the distillery and would learn the art and would be the next distiller. Uh, many families who came from Pennsylvania and who came through the Cumberland Gap with their stills uh, were, were families of distillers where the sons would continue distilling and the grandsons would distill. Um, so it was inevitable that there eventually would be naming fights, especially when one family member sold – a brand to corporate investors as New York money started coming into Kentucky
2: bourbon it got even more complex as I was reading when you've got a family that owns the still and then you they've got a distiller a master distiller an old um, was it Jacob Crow um, uh, but old Crow comes out of that right right I mean he, yeah J- he, he worked right, for James, Crow, James Crow
3: James Crow worked for Oscar Pepper yeah and he was a celebrated distiller he he was the guy who is identified as bringing scientific discipline to distillation so that you could get a consistent product and there was a a, a bourbon that was named after him when another bourbon legend named uh, Colonel E.H. Taylor Um, owned the Old Pepper Distillery for a little while and transferred the name Old Crow out to another one of his businesses and they started distilling what they called Old Crow Whiskey.
2: It's very, and so confusing. Um, And because of this predilection to name uh, whiskeys after a distiller, Um, and distillers I guess worked for for different um, companies at different times.
3: Uh, th- that's right. There's there's a lot of movement sure. uh, between distilleries, and here the the of course the Beam name runs throughout all of bourbon, mm-hmm. but there are uh, Beam distillers uh, at Heaven Hill ever since Heaven Hill was founded, uh, but you'll never see the word Beam on any Heaven Hill
2: label so we explain then the case law why why there can't be a beam whiskey from every distiller because because I love that as an example of how that should be the case given the predilection for naming it after the, uh, blends or brands after distillers
3: Sure. There, and there's actually there were a handful of, of cases that I go through in Bourbon Justice that that explain this. And one that was maybe the, the most fascinating to me is there was an old brand. It's it's not around anymore called Waterfill and Fraser, mm-hmm. And through a series of sales, the Waterfill and Fraser brand ended up being owned by someone with the last name of Dowling. And there weren't any Waterfills, there weren't any Frazier's working for the Dowlings anymore. And instead there was a nephew of each, or some relative of each, who started their own distillery that they wanted to call Waterfill and Frazier. Mm -hmm. And the court ruled that there was already a brand, Waterfill and Frazier, and that they couldn't use their own surnames precisely because there would have been market confusion. So it's it's just that's the same reason why beam can't be on any labels now is because there would be confusion between the source of the whiskey in that bottle
2: so how did you get into this topic how did how did you start with this i mean you're obviously you're you work for a law firm in louisville so that's a a giveaway but um but there are a lot of other lawyers in in Louisville. I'm just I'm just guessing who like bourbon. Who like plenty bourbon. of
3: lawyers and plenty of bourbon drinkers. Exactly,
2: and the, and I'm sure that that the, those two sets uh, overlap to some degree.
3: I, I think there's a I think that's safe to say. Yeah. So, um,
2: but you wrote a book about it.
3: I'm the one who wrote the book about it, and it started from well. I'm not ashamed to say dumb luck. <laughs> I had I've when when you're from Louisville, you tend to go on. Uh, bourbon tours at these distilleries, and I'd been on several of them before, and the timing was perfect for this because I had been at at a tour at Woodford Reserve. Uh, And a few days after going on that tour, while I was researching a totally different case and I don't remember what the subject was, a case from the 1800s just popped up in my search results. had nothing to do with what I was researching. And it was the Pepper versus LeBron Graham case. And I, as I read it, I could tell that it was talking about the distillery I had been at two days earlier. And the and it, I was struck that the tour guide didn't say anything about James Crow, didn't say anything about Oscar Pepper, didn't say anything about Colonel Taylor. Could you and could yet, you explain these the are case
2: fascinating a, stories a little bit? Sure. Yeah, so I I know this is your this is your favorite case. This Um, is my favorite case, and we'll explain a a, a little bit why as well. It's become even more favorite, but it's a complex story. But go ahead.
3: Sure, you're right. It is a complex story, uh, but to to try to to summarize it, um, Oscar Pepper was a brilliant distiller in his in his own right, and he owned what was called the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery in a city that Kentuckians called Versailles uh, <laughs> uh, in, in Woodford County and his, uh, his distiller was James Crow. Um, James died and Oscar continued to distill there and uh, when Oscar died, his son James was set to take over the distillery, um, but he was, he was still a minor. So a bourbon legend named Colonel E.H. Taylor stepped in and operated the distillery on James's behalf. Um, it eventually went to James, but partly due to economic conditions and, and overreaching on James's own part, he went bankrupt.
2: Hmm.
3: And, he, and he lost the distillery. Um, th- that's how it ends up getting to LeBron and Graham. Which was a was a um, another popular distiller in the time frame. They had they had other distilleries, other spirits interests, but they ended up buying the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery, and they continued to call it the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery, which they did, of course, because that's exactly what it was it was mm-hmm. the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery. It had it had great name rec- recognition and brand recognition. James got back on his feet and built a distillery in nearby Lexington, Kentucky, and he wanted to call it the old Oscar Pepper distillery. He wanted to use his father's name and More than that he wanted to prevent LeBron and Graham from using the old Oscar Pepper name um, He claimed that he owned that as a trademark and the court ended up ruling that because it was the name of a geographic location, a real, actual, authentic geographic location, LeBron Graham could continue to use the name Old Oscar Pepper Distillery. And more than that, it would have been false for James to bottle bourbon labeled as coming from the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery. Because it didn't, because the old Oscar Pepper Distillery was again an actual geographic place, and it this the story that the court tells really fascinated me, and it's it's wrapped up in 1800s writing, and it mm-hmm. it takes some dissecting to get through, um, but you could really tell the the story here, and they they showed different ads that James used, and they showed images of the of the barrel heads that. Uh, were used both before LeBron Graham came, came around and after LeBron Graham came around. And I wondered why Woodford Reserve wouldn't tell that story.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you,
2: you, you told me that this summer, based on this case, you did what?
3: So this summer we got a ruling, um, I, I think intentionally, on National Bourbon Day, June 14th, <laughs> which I'll always remember now but we got a, a ruling in a case where I cited this uh, case, this LeBron Graham case from the 1800s. And so as a, as a history fan and as a Bourbon fan and as a, I'll call myself a, a legal nerd as, as well, <laughs> uh, you, you rarely get to cite a case that has any age on it or that has any historical significance. So I I was really delighted to be able to to cite this case. Um, But I represented a distillery called Castle and Key, which had bought something called the Old Taylor Distillery in Millville, Kentucky, which is literally right down the creek from the Old Oscar Pepper Distillery. Mm -hmm. And this is a distillery that was built in 1887 by Colonel E.H. Taylor uh, it produced the famous old Taylor brand. Uh, it is literally a castle. Colonel Taylor built a castle in the in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and he brought tourism to the distillery industry. He brought folks out to have picnics, and he made it a, a showpiece distillery. Um, the distillery closed during the bourbon downturn, and the brand was sold uh, eventually to Jim Beam and then Jim Beam sold the brand to Sazerac so there is still an old Taylor brand uh-huh. and it's owned by Sazerac and it's made at the Buffalo Trace Distillery which also incidentally has a connection to E.H. Taylor because he he started his uh, first <laughs> distillery on that property he's he's connected everywhere yeah
2: right as an example uh, these distillers and owners who are who that's circulate? That's right. Yeah,
3: they circulate everywhere, and they own a piece here and, and, and a piece there.
2: Yeah.
3: Um. So, Castle and Key was sued by Sazerac because the, the there were signs that still said the old Taylor distil- Distillery. One of them was etched into the side of the castle wall. Uh, others of them were painted signs. Uh, but but Sazerac wanted to protect its trademark rights in the phrase Old Taylor. And one of our arguments was the Old Taylor Distillery is a geographic location.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: It's not being used as a trademark. It's Mm -hmm. being used historically and to identify truthfully Mm -hmm. the location. And, And fortunately, this past summer, we got a ruling from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals a form affirming an earlier summary judgment that we had obtained. So the signs are still up. You can go to Millville and see the old Taylor castle with the old Taylor sign on it. Uh, But it's also emblazoned with castle and key signs.
2: So castle and key could put out a bourbon made from the old Taylor, from old Taylor distilling or, but they couldn't call it old Taylor.
3: Well, yeah, they, they are Castle and Key will not call any brand that they produce Old Taylor, mm-hmm. and it won't be on the label anywhere so far as I know, um, but the signs can remain up, okay. and on tours, the folks at Castle and Key can, can tell customers the history of Colonel Taylor and the Old Taylor Distillery.
2: Hmm. Um, how did you do research for this book? Most of
3: it was done the same way that I will research any case, which essentially involves reading appellate cases that are precedent for whatever the issue is that that I'm researching. But here I pretty quickly realized that I had to go deeper into the facts um, and if I wanted to tell a story, Mm -hmm. if I wanted to make this something different than a legal brief that I've would have uh, would have submitted to a court. So unbeknownst to me, and I'm glad it exists, but I didn't know before this book, Kentucky has archives from all of its uh, circuit and district courts in Frankfurt, which is our capital. And while a lot of the old case files have been destroyed either by fires and floods and document purges. Yeah. There's, Courthou- there's
2: courthouses a- are remarkable attractors of lightning. I can tell the,
3: you that. It happens. Yeah. They, they burn and they, there's plenty of, of, of valleys in Kentucky, so they flood. Yeah, they flood. Mm-hmm. And we, we lose that history. But I, I realized that probably because of Prohibition, a lot of the written record that I might have relied upon otherwise was gone. Uh, if you had a distiller in your family, that, that you didn't want to talk about that history. It was, it was a pariah hmm. to have a distiller. And you got rid of all those documents. Most of the distilleries closed and they got rid of their documents. There's no need to save any of those things. Um, and then you just have oral history, which is mostly unreliable. It's maybe good for a starting point. But I found that I really didn't have the sort of resource that I wanted until I found these cases in the archives. And I was able to read original deposition transcripts. I was able to read original affidavits. I was able to look at exhibits that were used at, in trial that were still maintained in the archives. And reading, the, reading exactly what Colonel Taylor said in these cases, Hmm. allowed me to tell more of a of a story instead of just a a, a dry legal brief
2: mm-hmm. You also uh, spiced it up the book the book is spiced up with occasional tasting notes, uh, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, usually it's in it usually and the tasting notes relate to what you're discussing either to a historical brand or to the concept that you've been mentioning which I also thought was a very nice touch so for example when you're talking about um, definitions and purity and so on you mentioned will it pure Kentucky XO which is that which is I get we had just talked about that earlier in the right. conversation right um, so it, if you want to give a couple of ideas of uh, particular um, uh, modern bourbons that uh, encapsulate incorporate or encapsulate some of this history. Uh, what would they be?
3: Well, I, I wish I was able to to taste some of the pre-prohibition brands because I've I've had those before, and while some of them uh, turn bad mm-hmm. and uh, undrinkable bad, there are a few of them that have survived, and it's a it's a different taste experience than a lot of what you can get today, uh, because I, I part of that as is I think because of lower proof into the barrels. Hmm. A lot of those are, were aged a lot longer than they were today. Um, and the, the grain was ground differently. Um, and it was a lot less mechanized. So I, I wish the book could have had some of those, but what I, what I did instead, and and thanks for pointing that out. uh, I tried to bring in brands that related to, uh, to different sections in the book. So, Mm For example, with Bottled and Bond, I wanted to make sure to identify a few brands that use that Bottled and Bond designation. And Heaven Hill is probably the distillery that is most responsible for today's resurgence in the Bottled and and Bond brands. And so I think I had Henry McKenna uh, Bottled and Bond, Mm -hmm. which is an absolutely phenomenal bourbon and it's, it's one of those that I call a, a price performer. It's, it's under the radar, and it's about $30 I for just, a 10-year-old I, bourbon.
2: Yeah, and I was just, I mean, I think all of Henry McKenna's um, stuff, I've just been drinking the economy um, bottle of Henry McKenna, mm-hmm. um, and that's a really, for the price, it's amazing how good it is. It's really, I, I think.
3: You know. it, it really is. It's a. It's one of the hidden gems, and there's not many hidden gems out Left, there
2: anymore. No, but there. But it is. It's like the uh, you, you. You have people who are pursuing the really the glamour um and like the if i hear someone talk about pappy van winkle again i might have to go get a gun um agreed um but they pursue it's like with any kind of you know snob craze or something like that people are pursuing stuff like that but not looking for other things that are in hiding in plain sight
3: that's right and that's definitely one that's hiding in in plain sight and so I also um, had tasting notes on some, on some Four Roses products because uh, I think, as I had mentioned earlier, they've got a very popular single barrel mm-hmm. brand. So I, I did tasting notes on their single barrel variety. Um, the, uh, when I got into Wild Turkey a little bit, I, there's um, the father-son distilling team there, Jimmy and Eddie Russell. And they're really under the radar, I think, too. Um, you think Wild Turkey's
2: they, under the radar now?
3: Well, we, I'd probably not anymore. But their, but their, their Russell's Reserve single uh-huh. barrel, I think, is under the the radar. Okay, it's a fantastic bourbon for about forty or forty five dollars, depending on your market. Um, it's also got some age on it. It's also got some proof on it, and it's not, um, it's not fancy with a limited edition label or anything like that. It's it's a bourbon that's accessible. Uh, that is fantastic, and that's really what I'm looking for.
2: Yeah. What? What? Well, uh, here's a strange question, but I, what would what bourbon would you have someone taste who says they don't like bourbon, um, that they're a Scotch drinker but they don't like bourbon? I've never quite understood it. I've never been able to. i have never turned up my nose at uh, Scottish whiskey. But the right. but the other way people uh, seem to go, people the, coming the other way often seem to make a big deal out of it. Um, uh, would I, you wa- want, want to find something with a high barley or, in the mash or, or with more rye or what?
3: Um, I th- People who have told me that, and I've, I've heard that too, have tended to think that bourbon is too sweet.
2: Right. That's what so, they always say.
3: So someone who is a, who claims to be a Scotch fan, uh, who I'm, uh, having tri bourbon, I would not give a weeded bourbon. Mm-hmm. Weeded bourbons tend to be sweeter. So a, a maker's mark, a larceny, uh, those sorts of things I'd probably steer clear from. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
3: I, I, there aren't very many bourbons that have a lot of barley more than 10%. And it's really not a note that comes through, on very many of the bourbons that I've tried, although you've mentioned pure Kentucky, and I remember that one as having a a very um, strong uh, flavor profile that reminded me of a, a lot of malted barley and and more of a of a Scotch. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably give a Scotch drinker something that had high rye content.
2: Yeah, well then just give them a rye, actually.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that would work, too, because I would I would want them to see the punch that a rye can bring. Mm-hmm. And particularly if it's a fan of a peated scotch who's used to something smacking them in the face.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I think a, a high rye content might give them something that they could appreciate.
2: Well, this has been great. Um, <laughs> I wish we could uh, keep talking about this for another hour or so Um, uh, I forgot I did not have my own uh, bourbon sitting in front of me uh, while I did this but uh, this has made me really thirsty so thanks so much for uh, being on Historically Thinking
3: well I really appreciate the opportunity the time has flown and uh, I I wish we could talk longer as well I'm, I'm really excited about history and I wanted to make this book as much as I could, even as an amateur, uh, about history, or have show that there's a historical perspective to bourbon and law.